following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know Him and make Him known. One of my passions has always been writing songs. I started playing guitar when I was in middle school and started writing some songs when I was in high school. They were very bad. Um, not good in any way, shape, or form, uh, but I started writing songs in it. But it wasn't until college that I really got into the, the craft of writing songs, and even into today. Uh, I mean, you've, you've seen me, I, I play guitar, I sing, um, I, I do a lot of musical things, but if you were to ask me who I am as a musician, I, I generally say I'm first of all a songwriter. Like, that's, that's just what I love. And, and as I started really getting into that in college, Um, It was interesting how much of my life was changed by studying songwriting. Um, It it, it changed my approach to how I practiced my guitar, what I would do when I sat down with the guitar and what I would try to figure out and and how to work that into songwriting. It changed the music I listened to um, as I started listening listening to these uh, obscure songwriters that nobody else had ever heard of, um, but whose craft and whose ability I, I really appreciated. It changed even how I read books and, and how I thought about a story and how a story is constructed and told and details and all of that stuff. And in short, it changed me. Learning to write songs changed me. But here's the thing. That change was really easy. It was an easy change. Why? Because I loved what I was doing and I loved what I was finding out, what I was figuring out along the way. As we've talked in Nehemiah, we've talked often about the fact that change is a a difficult thing for many of us. And, And in most cases, change is hard for us. But as we look at today's passage, I I just want us to realize that sometimes change is easy. Sometimes it's not hard. And you can probably think of times or places in your life where change has been easy. Maybe it was a career change. That as you looked at the the opportunity in front of you, it was just a no-brainer. Like you you just thought, yes, this is what I need to do. And so I'm going to go this direction. And you didn't even give it a second thought. Or, Or maybe it was a move, a location change, where you were just ready for a new environment. And leaving the old one wasn't difficult. That change was pretty easy because you were ready to go on. Maybe it was the change from being a parent to being a a grandparent. I look at you grandparents and I go, man, that seems way more fun and way easier than being a parent. Or maybe for you it was some kind of educational pursuit, some degree or certification that you were going after that it was just an easy thing to go, yes, this is what I'm going to do. And even the process was easy. Whatever it was, whatever that change is that comes to mind where you think, okay, what was a a change that was easy? I want you to think for a second, why was that easy for you? And if we boil it down, there's probably two real reasons why that change would have been easy for you. Either one, you saw how valuable the change was and it was worth any challenges that came along like that was just easy or because you loved the process. 
And for me, studying songwriting was, was easy because I loved the process of that creativity of, of coming up with a story and putting it to music and how that all fits together. And, and I saw how valuable my work was. And for us, as we continue to discuss how we grow and mature as faithful believers, we remember that that's not always an easy process. It requires hard work. We've, we've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. But for today, as we get into Nehemiah 10, I, I want us to ask this question. How can we approach God's restoration of our hearts in a way that reminds us of the value and the joy in the process of God's change? And Nehemiah chapter 10 is going to show us the the completeness of Israel's dedication to the faithfulness of the Lord. How they see how valuable and, and joyful God's change in their life is. And so the process becomes easier. Because like Israel, we are called to that faithful response, that faithful obedience before the Lord. And this obedience is birthed from a, a joy in the process. That obedience is birthed first from a love for God's law. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 29 of Nehemiah chapter 10, a love for God's law. See, if we were to read through verses 1 through 27, we get a list of the leaders of Israel who signed this new covenant of obedience. I mean, in fact, if we go back to chapter 9, verse 38, we close out chapter 9 where it says, in view of all of this, right, in view of all of this, and remember last week, the this was all of chapter 9, this prayer of repentance where the Israelites looked and said, man, God has, God has delivered us and provided for us over and over again, and we continue to turn away. And even when we turn away, he brings us back and he provides for us and he delivers us. And then we turn away. And they're just reminded, they're confronted with God's goodness, God's holiness, God's love, his grace, his mercy for them. And so they say, in view of all of this, God's overwhelming goodness and deliverance, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. And then chapter 10, verse 1 through 27 gives us this list of those leaders, Levites, and priests who signed. And after that list is, is given, we get to verse 28 and 29, where it says this, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, singers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord, our Lord. Verse 28 and 29 tell us that the covenant wasn't just about the leaders who signed the new covenant, but it was about all those who committed themselves, who understood who God was, and who committed themselves to holiness, which is the separation, and obedience, Right, to obeying God's law. And we've seen in God's restoration of his people how they have been blown away by, by who God is. They've been brought to a better understanding, a full, complete understanding of who God is. And it has drawn them to an immediate response, an immediate reaction of holiness and obedience. 
And the response of the people is, is shown here. This response of committing themselves back to God's commands, ordinances, and statutes, as it says in verse 29. And this is a, a response of love for the God who has delivered them, who has provided for them, and the God who has given them his law. Right? The people love God's law because they love the one who has given it to them. And so the response to the love of the God who has given the law is to love the law and do everything they can to obediently keep it. They're seeking in this a true and meaningful obedience. And here's the thing. That only comes when we love God and we love his law. It's easy to to love God, to go, oh yeah, God delivers me, God saves me, I love him. But in order to love him, we must love his law as well because he's given his law to protect us, to provide for us, to lead us where we need to be. We need to seek true and meaningful obedience to God's law. But true and meaningful obedience to God's law never results from us just trying harder or focusing more intently or determining to be, quote unquote, better Christians. Meaningful obedience only comes when we are so overwhelmed by who Jesus is and what he has already accomplished that we want nothing but to give everything in our lives to the Lord and to live according to his law because we know that his law, his law shows us and leads us to his love and offers us his very best. My wife Erin makes the best brownies in the world, right? And anybody who has had Erin's brownies would say, yep, those are the best. Like, and, and I'm not trying to be offensive to you if you think your grandmother's recipe is the best brownie recipe in the world. That's fine. I'm sure it's really good. And if you gave me your grandma's brownies, I'm sure I would love them because I like brownies and they'd probably be really good. And I'd say, man, these things are delicious. But at the end of the day, when I get a hankering for some brownies, you know whose brownies I want? Not your grandmother's really good recipe. I want the best. I want Aaron's brownies. Because I've had the best. Now, why would I want anything other than the best? Why would I want less than the best? See, when we understand the depth and the beauty and peace and comfort and satisfaction that can be had in the will of our God by the love of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can't help but love him more and desire obedience over the temporary gratifications of the lesser desires of our flesh. When we love God for who he is and understand his love, then we love his law because we know his law leads us to what is best. When we have tasted the best, we don't want less. This is what the psalmist tells us in Psalm 34, verse 8, where it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then it says, how happy, or your translation may say, how blessed is the person who takes refuge in him. When we love and obey the Lord and seek our everything in him, give him everything, seek our refuge in him, we are blessed because we know what is best. So let me ask you this, why do we act the way we do? Why do you act the way we do? Is it out of a, a sense of duty? Good people go to church. The best Christians read their Bible, and so I do. 
Right? Is it in hope of gaining favor from the Lord? If I just do this, then God will love me. He will take care of me. Or do we act out of a love for God's person, God's nature, and God's law, knowing that God gives us what we need for the best in our lives? See, true obedience begins with a love for God, which translates to a love for his law. But to continue in obedience we must also develop a commitment to God's love. A commitment to God's love. And we see this in verse 30 through 39. And the rest of this chapter, these these verses give us a look at, at how the people express their commitment to God's love and God's law through this new covenant. And, and they do so by faithfully committing themselves in, in three main areas. First, we see their commitment to holiness. Their commitment to holiness in verse 30 through 31. It says, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. Commitment to holiness. Two issues of spiritual drift that continually plague the people of Israel, and if we're honest, plague us today as well. The first is the idea of mixed marriages, right? And this is about a spiritually mixed marriage. It's a surrender of God's holiness to the physical desires of the flesh. God had called his people not to intermarry with the peoples around them. Why? Because God knew that these marriages with these foreign people and their foreign religions would sway the worship of the Israelites. So he says, if you're going to remain holy, if you're going to remain faithful to me, you must keep me at the center of your life. But these mixed marriages, these marriages with foreign peoples uh, and foreign nations really was the idea of, no, no, I like the the looks of that person or I like what they have and putting that before the faithfulness they had to the Lord. It was choosing the desire, the physical desires of the flesh over God's holiness. The second area here was the breaking of the Sabbath. It's a surrender of God's holiness to the pressures of the mind. Sabbath is still a huge issue today, and if you know me, you know this is one of my soapbox issues. We're not going to go too deep on it today, um, but we're going to see this come up again in a couple chapters. But the people had chosen to break the Sabbath, to not obey the Sabbath, because they felt like they had things they needed to do. Right? And, And while we don't think about this today, I don't think many of us think about Sabbath in these terms today. But our adherence to the Sabbath, our taking Sabbath rest, is a reminder that God is in charge and we are not. Because the reason we don't take Sabbath rest, the reason we don't actually give ourselves Sabbath rest, is because we believe we have too much to do. And the only way we're going to get it done is by working for seven days. God said, no, no, you work six days and you rest on the seventh. You have a Sabbath day of rest. But we go, no, but God God didn't understand when he said that how busy I was going to be today. If God only knew, it's okay not think. We think, can't get it done. I'll let you in on that. Finish in seven. Get it done. There's always going to be unfinished work. 
when we take Sabbath rest is when we say, I know I can't get everything done, but I'm okay with that because God's holiness is more important to me than the pressures that are on my mind. So the Israelites commit themselves to holiness. Then in verse 32 through 34, they, com- they, they make a commitment to obedience. A commitment to obedience. Verse 32 through 34 says, We will impose the following commands on ourselves, to give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly to the services of the house of our God, the bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbath and new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offering to atone for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We have cast lots among the priests, Levites, and people for the donation of wood by our ancestral families at the appointed times each year. They are to bring the wood to our God's house and to burn, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. A commitment to obedience. Man, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is that the, the Israelites are committing to give of themselves for God's purpose. They institute this this promise of a a temple tax to maintain the temple, of giving of the bread that that is to be used in the temple, of wood to maintain the worship at the temple, this wood to be used for for whatever it needs in the the temple, including the, the sacrifices that are made on the altar. Just to, at its core, at its most basic level, They're saying, whatever it takes for us to remain faithful to God's house, we will do. We are committing to obedience. This probably wouldn't be an easy process. It would require things of them, but they are giving whatever they have and doing whatever they need to do, including just bringing wood to the temple in order to be faithful to God's house. So they commit to obedience. So a commitment to holiness, commitment to obedience, and then in verse 35 through 39, we get a commitment to worship. Verse 35 begins, We will bring the first fruit of our land and of every fruit of the tree to the Lord's house year by year. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and our livestock as prescribed by the law. We will bring the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who serve in our God's house. We will bring a loaf from our first batch of dough to the priests at the storerooms of the house of our God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offerings, of every fruit tree, and of every new wine and fresh oil. A tenth of our land's produce belongs to the Levites, for the Levites are to collect the one-tenth offering in all our agricultural towns. A priest from Aaron's descendants is to accompany the Levites when they collect the tenth, and the Levites are to take a tenth of this offering to the storehouse of the treasury in the house of our God. For the Israelites and the Levites are to bring the contributions of grain, new wine, and fresh oil to the storehouses where the articles of the sanctuary sanctuary are kept, and where the priests who minister are, along with the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Okay, so there's a lot that goes on here, um, and, and we were talking uh, in our discovery group today about um, how sometimes we read things and we're like, man, why did God need to tell us that? Because I have no idea what to take from that. And this can be one of those, one of those passages where are like, well, they're bringing all this stuff to the Levites and the storehouses and the temple, and what are they doing? And the, the priest must go with the Levite and whatever. But I think that the big thing we come back to in this whole passage is that this builds and builds and builds until you get to verse 39. And the end of verse 39 says, we will not neglect the house of our God. Simply put, Israel dedicates the very best of everything they have 
to the Lord, right? It says they dedicate the, the first fruits of their trees, of their firstborn sons and animals, the first batch of dough, the first fruits of grain, the, the best of their oil. Whatever they had, they were not going to neglect the worship of God in his house. And so they gave the best of what they had to the Lord. And how could they do this? Because they knew that nothing they possessed was theirs. They understood, right? The firstborn, the first fruits, all of these firsts that they give is given in an understanding that nothing they have is theirs. It all belongs to the sovereign God who has provided for them. And so they have no trouble relinquishing the best of what they have because they know it's not theirs. This passage shows that Israel is totally committed to living in light of God's love. They will give everything they have to worship the Lord, to give him all glory and honor and praise. They are ready to go wholeheartedly, fully and completely committed to God's love. I, I don't know how many of you, if, if any of you have ever been skydiving. Right? I, I've never been skydiving because, well, I like to think I'm a sane person. <laughs> right? I see no reason to jump out of a plane, right? The only two times where I think, you know, jumping out of a plane might be a good idea is number one, if it's crashing or number two, if I'm a Navy SEAL, okay? And I'm never going to accomplish number two. uh, And I hope I never encounter number one, right? So I see no reason to jump out of a plane. But, But if I were to go skydiving, if I were to ever go and jump out of a plane, I imagine that this is the truth of the case. That when you get up in the air and the plane is flying and you come to the door of that plane and you're standing there at the door and you're ready to jump out, that at some point you have to let go of the plane and jump out. Like I imagine that if I were to go up skydiving and jump out of the plane, but hang on, that that's not going to go well for me. There comes a point, if you're going to skydive, where you have to commit yourself fully and completely to jumping out of the plane. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. And as we grow and mature in our faith, as God continues to work to renovate our hearts, he calls us to this total and full commitment, just as the Israelites committed themselves to total and full commitment, to a wholehearted commitment to God's love and to God's law. So what does a wholehearted commitment look like for us? And and while I can't tell you exactly what that's going to look like in your life or what the specific instances will be for you to commit yourself to a deeper, wholehearted commitment in your life, I think in looking at Nehemiah chapter 10, we get four characteristics of a wholehearted commitment that we can apply to our lives. First, a wholehearted commitment pursues holiness. A wholehearted commitment pursues holiness. And holiness, we talk about this often, but holiness is about more than just not sinning. I think sometimes we think, well, I'm holy if I don't do bad things, right? I don't drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. But holiness is not about not sinning. Holiness is about loving Jesus Christ above all else. 
Because our sinful behaviors are not really the problem with our holiness. Do you you realize that? Our sinful behavior is not the problem. Sinful behavior is a symptom of a sin-sick heart. James tells us this in James 1, verse 14 and 15. He says, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Right? The sin, the sinful action flows from a sin-sick heart, a heart full of evil desires. Pursuing holiness doesn't mean we stop evil actions. It means we want hearts so pure that they don't even desire sin, that they don't even see sin as something enticing. In Psalm 119, verse 11, the psalmist says, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Or he says, not that I have memorized your word or that I have read your word so that I may not sin against you. No, he says, I have treasured your word in my heart. It's not about just looking at at who God is, understanding who he is, having some theological knowledge. It's about treasuring the Lord and his word and his love and his grace and his mercy and forgiveness so much that we don't even want to sin against him. It's about getting our hearts right. Holiness is about the state of our hearts. So let me ask you this. Does your heart treasure holiness this morning? A wholehearted commitment pursues holiness. Number two, a wholehearted commitment celebrates obedience. A wholehearted commitment celebrates obedience. Holiness, that pure heart, will naturally always lead to obedience, pure behavior. Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, right, and this, this phrase, a drink offering, being poured out as a drink offering, he's saying, even if I die. And remember, when Paul writes this, he's sitting in prison. He doesn't know what his life has in store. He doesn't know what's coming next. He doesn't know if he will live or if he will die. But he says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, even if I'm going to die, On the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. He says, listen, I'm going to do what God's called me to do. I'm going to be who God has called me to be. And even if it means the end of my life, because I've served him in his love and have served you to the glory and honor of his name, I will rejoice. Paul celebrates the cost of his obedience. He says, my obedience was worth it. My obedience was worth it. Right? And our obedience will be costly in our lives. We may not pay for our obedience with our lives like Paul does eventually. But that question is, when we are called to obey, are our hearts so pure that we can celebrate obedience regardless of the cost? Do we dread what we have to give up for Jesus? When you think about what changes in your life because you follow Jesus, maybe the activity you have to give up, the habit you need to break, maybe the friends you need to not be around, when you think about what must change if you wholeheartedly commit to Jesus, do you celebrate the fact that you get to sacrifice for the glory of Jesus Christ? Or do you dread it? 
And at the end of the day, what does that, our dread or our joy, say about what our hearts treasure? A wholehearted commitment celebrates obedience. Number three, a wholehearted commitment surrenders in worship. A wholehearted commitment surrenders in worship. Again, our obedience will cost us. It will cost us things like time, energy, resources, maybe relationships. It will cost us the desires of our flesh. But but when we surrender or worship to Jesus Christ, then that sacrifice ceases to be painful, just like we saw for Paul. Just like we see in the life of David. In Psalm 63, verse 3 through 4, King David has just been chased from his kingdom. His son, Absalom, has sought to overthrow him, wants to kill him, chases him from his kingdom. And David now wanders in the countryside of Judah. And even in the midst of that, David says this in Psalm 63, verse 3 through 4, my lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. Do you hear it? David says in the midst of everything else going on, in the midst of the trials and the struggles that I am facing, the turmoil, the upheaval, I remember that your faithful love is better than anything in this life. And so because you love me, I will worship you. At your name, I will lift up my hands. I will bless you. We always have to remember that worship is not merely singing songs or or attending a Sunday morning service. Worship is a constant declaration of the worship of Jesus and of his place in our lives. True worship lays our best at his feet and says, no matter what happens to me, no matter how difficult, how, how, how great a struggle this life is for me right now, I will remember who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and the worthiness of who he is, and I will worship him. When we truly worship, we do sing. We do study God's word. We do tithe. We do set aside dedicated Sabbath rest. We do love the body of Christ. We do all of these things. But again, they're not done out of a sense of of duty or I have to do this. It's with joy. It's with hope that we surrender everything in our lives because we get to worship our God. And the more we do, the more we worship him, the more joyous, energizing, and complete our worship becomes. Right, if you've ever had that time in your life where you feel like your worship or your walk with the Lord is, is maybe incomplete or maybe it feels totally empty, you want to know why that is? It's because you've accepted, you've refused to accept the true worth of Jesus in your life. You know how I know that? Because I've been there. When my worship feels a little bit cold, when I feel that distance between the Lord, I got to stop and remember that it's not he who has moved. I've moved. I've sought other things. I've sought my comfort, my rest, my hope, my joy in things of this world and not in him. And when I realize that, I can put those things down. I can let them go and I can run back to Jesus and know that he is standing there with his arms open going, Jonathan, I've just been here waiting for you. Come back. If our worship feels incomplete and empty, 
That question is, have we accepted the true worth of Jesus? Because if we have, then it becomes easier and easier to surrender in worship. So a wholehearted commitment pursues holiness, celebrates obedience, surrenders in worship. Finally, a wholehearted commitment is satisfied in Christ. A wholehearted commitment is satisfied in Christ. Being fully committed to the love God has for us leaves us wanting nothing more than to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Corinth in chapter 2, verse 2, and he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What Paul has said leading up to this is, he said, listen, I didn't come to you with this great wisdom or this eloquence of speech. I didn't try to convince you I was anything or that I had anything to offer you other than Jesus Christ, because that's all you need to know. Paul wasn't worried about his reputation, about his wealth, about his comfort, about his respect, about his standing in the community. He was only concerned with the truth and the depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just wanted people to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loved them in this incredibly infinite way. And while we, as as a people, had turned away from him time and time again, as we continued to seek ways to reject him, to pursue our own way over his, he continued to love us, provide for us, deliver us. And then at just the right time, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live this life perfectly. The way you and I were created to live it, but messed it up. Also that he could die on the cross, giving himself as the payment for our sin. By by his body and his blood, he paid the penalty of sin, washing us clean, redeeming us from our lostness so that he could be laid in a tomb and three days later rise, leaving the tomb empty, defeating death once and for all so that we don't have to fear what comes after this life, but we know we have been redeemed, washed clean, and given access to our God. And that Jesus reigns eternally, the right hand of the throne of God. So that when we stand before the Lord in judgment, we're not judged by who we are, what we've done, or how badly we have messed up this life, but we're judged by the perfect, righteous holiness of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus lived perfectly, died sacrificially, rose victoriously to deliver us completely. Is there anything else that we need? I know we think sometimes in our flesh we need more, but man, is Jesus enough for us? Or do we think we need Jesus plus? Because a wholehearted commitment is satisfied in Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, it all comes down to this. Are we wholeheartedly committed? As we've talked over the past few weeks about God's call to our need for and the motivation in change, we, like Israel, are confronted with this question. How will we respond? And our hope is that we will pursue God's law and love with faithful obedience. Not because we hope to receive something from the Lord, but because we understand the blessing we have already received in God's redemption, in Jesus' sacrifice, and in the Holy Spirit's indwelling in us. We respond out of a love for God's law. 
a love for the Lord and for the commands that a good, holy, and loving God has put in place for his glory and for our ultimate good. And we respond with a commitment to God's love. We give of ourselves wholeheartedly to God's willful love so that we can be molded and shaped to be more and more like Christ with every desire of our heart, with every thought from our minds, with every word from our mouths, and with every work from our hands. Church family, may we remain faithfully committed to God's calling in our lives as individuals and as the body of Christ. Let us, let us be who he has called us to be so that we can do what he has called us to do, so that we might share with the world exactly who our gracious, compassionate, and awesome Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that you have chosen not to leave us in our sin and our depravity, but you have loved us and pursued us and bought us back from our wickedness and from our rebellion. And as we think about how you are restoring our hearts and and have put us to that work for your glory and for our good, Father, may we respond with love for your law and with a commitment to your love. May we take the truth of who you are to the world around us. May we be changed this morning to be exactly who you have called us to be because you are God and you are faithful and you are good and we know that and we want nothing more than to love you and serve you with all that we have and all that we are. Lord, we love you. And in your great and awesome name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.